Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Our text today is verse 13 through the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 13 through the end of the Old Testament. 4-6. As you're finding your place there, please stand with me and we'll read these these few verses, and then pray for the Lord's help as we study this morning. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help once again as we study your scriptures. We acknowledge before you that you are a great and kind God. And that it is a a great gift to us that you have given. That we should be called your servants. We pray that this text would remind us of that. That there is great profit in following Christ. Pray that you would help us to see these things and love them and live in light of them as we leave this morning. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This is the last message in our study of the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The series has been entitled, 
build, colon, not build colon, but build, you know, punctuation, the life and mission of a covenant people. The, the, the church is, is called by God to gather worshipers to God by sharing the, the gospel with the lost and by ministering the gospel to the saved. That is, the church is tasked with building the church. We began with Haggai, who called us to get busy building. Zechariah encouraged us to continue building in the midst of great opposition by focusing on kingdom promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. As we've come to Malachi, he has exhorted us not to miss the whole point. Having God is the whole point of building the church, being the church. God is the great blessing of this life of faith. Building the church is pointless if we don't understand the nature of worship. For many in Judah, their worship was empty. We've been using that phrase, empty worship, as we've studied Malachi. But we find this morning that there was always a remnant in and among the people who truly feared God and who worshipped Him truly, esteeming His name. Now Malachi closes out this, this prophecy with a significant question, puts it in front of us. And that question is this, what is the profit of serving God? Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. What is the profit of serving God? To serve God, what does that mean? It's an important thing to consider as we begin. To serve God is not just to obey His commands. It is that, but there's, there's more to it. The Bible does not make the hard distinction, the way that we tend to, between serving God and believing God. Biblically, there, there is no category of, of believer, that is somebody who has repented and followed Christ in faith, who doesn't also serve Him, who doesn't also obey Him. That's a foreign concept to the Bible. That, that doesn't work. There, there aren't believers who don't obey God. You can consult First John on that issue. He's quite clear. Trusting, believing, obeying, loving, serving Christ. The Bible takes all of those things and wraps them up together with a shorthand phrase, following Christ. Following Christ is to love Him, to trust Him, to obey Him, to serve Him. Those who belong to Christ do those things. And so this morning as we, as we hear phrases in the text and in this message like, those who serve God and those who don't serve God, we need to have in our minds not the, to think just those who obey God, those who don't obey God, but the broader category, the broader biblical biblical category of those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ. So Malachi gives us this question, what is the profit of serving God? And this is, this is more than just a theological consideration. For some of us, it may be quite practical and pertinent even this morning. Like, like some of the people of Judah in the early part of our text, we too can be drawn to wonder what is the value of following Christ? We look at our, our own lives and we may think to ourselves, I'm building the church, I'm doing the work, but it's not working for me. As I look at my unsaved friends, it seems that they have just as much joy as I do. It seems that they're proffer, pro, pro, 
prospering more than I am. In fact, not only do they seem to have fewer problems than I do, but I have a category of problem that they don't. When I'm faithful to Christ, there's persecution on top of everything else that I have just as as benefit of being a human being. What profit is there in following Christ? Malachi gives us the answer in this text. Something that we, we need to hear often, we need to be reminded of. He says that it is great in every respect. He shows us two groups of people, those who serve God, those who do not serve God. And then he shows their respective prophets, what they can, what they can expect to result from their lives of following God or not following God. And he explicit, implicitly asks us, which group are you in? Malachi first shows the Lord addressing those who don't serve God. And so following the pattern that we've seen in the rest of the book, the Lord begins with an accusation. Let's go back up to 3.13. The Lord says to the people, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So you can see that, that main question on the lips of the people in verse 14. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We want to begin by paying attention to what the Lord says about those who don't serve him. And first of all, we find that they may believe they are serving God. Those who don't serve God may believe they are serving God. What is the use of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before him? They're referring to these, these empty tasks of worship that the Lord has condemned in this book. That phrase, walking is, as in mourning, likely is a reference to the ritual fasts that we saw back in Zechariah 7, if you can remember that long ago, where the people, the people fasted not because they loved God or because they re- regretted their offenses against Him, but because they were, they were checking off boxes so that God would give them what they wanted. In, in, in their minds, empty worship, what we've, categ- we've called empty worship, that is serving God. And so they, they think they've been serving God, but by God's definition, they've never served Him. And that, that's a major point of this prophecy. They think they're serving God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Those who don't serve God also believe it is vain or profitless to, to do so. They believe it's vain or profitless to serve God. It's vain to serve God, they say. It, it doesn't do any good. There's, there's no profit in it. In fact, they say those who openly reject God and, and they call these people the arrogant and the evildoers, they're blessed. They prosper. They test God. They pay no consequences for it. This is where you really start to see that, that vending machine mindset show up in this, in this book. God, we, we've been plunking the, the worship coins into the slot here, but you're not spitting out the blessings. Serving God doesn't work, they conclude. Doesn't work. You see the irony here? They think they're serving God. They're confident then that serving God doesn't work. It, it doesn't procure blessings. 
But in reality, they've never served God, and so they have no clue what they're talking about. They don't have any clue what they're talking about. They don't know that serving God doesn't work because they've never done it. Many people in the, in the world and, and in the professing church have the same idea of, of empty worship as the definition of serving God. And so they think that they are serving God. And they think of serving God as something of a business transaction. These are, these are things that I do to get God to do things for me. And so they give, but God isn't giving back, and so they conclude, this doesn't work. And I wonder how many of us have heard that kind of language in, in conversation with, with people, whether, whether it's, it's uh, people who claim to be believers still or, or, or whatever. They'll say things like, I tried Christianity. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I tried Christianity. It just didn't work for me. Like, like some kind of a fad diet, they'll talk about it. it. It just didn't work for me. Well, you can't try Christianity. That's not how it works. But, but remember what it, what, what it really means to biblically serve God. It's, it's that whole package. It's believing, trusting, loving, obeying, serving, surrendering to Christ. It, you, you don't do it on a trial basis. You give everything to Christ that you might have everything that He is. And so we saw last week, it, it, it is following Christ, truly worshiping Him is giving Him your whole life and not holding anything back. But those who don't serve God, they, they believe that it's profitless to do that. They're wrong because they have never served God. They don't know what they're talking about. Those, those who don't serve God also value gifts rather than God. And of course, this is a theme also that we've we've seen in previous weeks, the people of Judah, they, they, have, they have God right there in a sense. I mean, the purpose of building that temple was so that they could enjoy fellowship with God. The God of the universe has chosen them of all the nations of the world and has, has brought them to himself. He wants them to come to him, to enjoy him. But what is it that the people really want? The people want God's stuff and not God. And at the, at, the, at the heart of this is the desire to be like all the other nations. They look around at all of these, these surrounding peoples, and, and they, they want to be like them. They don't want to be a holy nation to the Lord. They, they, they aren't into the whole, the Lord is my portion thing. That just doesn't appeal to them. That they, they are the kind of people who would want heaven. They would want heaven even if Jesus wasn't there. Because he isn't the point for them. It's the stuff, it's the stuff that he gives. That's what they're after. Those who don't serve God also are called wicked by God. We have to jump down to verse 18 to see this, where God speaks of these two groups of people. He says in 3.18, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and who do not serve him. In, in spite of all that they think that they're giving to the Lord in spite of how they think that they are different from the evil Gentile nations all around them. God says of these people who claim to be His, but who find it vain to serve Him, He says that they are wicked. Describes them the way that He would all the Gentile nations. Remember, these are among the people who profess to be God's people. They are 
They are analogous to the nominal believer today, the person who goes to church every week and gives empty worship, claiming to be a believer, but who does not know what it means to follow Christ. Now, those folks are given center stage there in verses 13 through 15, but then we, we see a pivot in verse 16 where the Lord speaks of those who do serve him. Look at verse 16 with me. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. These, these are the people, interestingly, have all the same circumstances as the previous group. They're, they're in and among. They're, 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 they are the same people group, in a sense. I mean, they, they are all people of Judah, the same circumstances. But they, are, they have a very different disposition toward God. And first of all, they, they fear God. Those who serve God fear God. We talked briefly in the first message in Malachi about what it means to fear God. And I won't rehash all of that, but I would like to suggest to you a, a resource that I found extremely helpful on that concept of fearing God. Some, some folks are afraid of the Puritans, and that's okay, that's okay, because so, some of them are very difficult to read. The one that I'm going to suggest is not difficult to read. The book is simply called The Fear of God by John Bunyan. The Fear of God by John Bunyan. So if that concept of the fear of God is something that has confused you or that you've found difficult to understand over the years, it will not be, Lord willing, after you read Bunyan's work. These people, these people who are serving God, they fear God. That is, they they have a right disposition toward Him. They have a right understanding of who He is and of who they are relative to Him. They recognize He's God. They're not. They work for Him, not Him for them. He's to be served, not the other way around. They They have a godly fear of the Lord. Those who serve God also stir one another up. They stir one another up. Verse 16 reads, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Greek version of the Old Testament reads this way, Those who feared the Lord spoke against these things. They spoke against these things to one another. Meaning that they spoke against the nonsense that they were hearing from those who weren't serving the Lord among them. They, they, they were getting together saying, These things that we're hearing, this isn't true. There's great profit in serving the Lord. It's a travesty. It's deplorable what the majority are saying about our good God. In other words, they encouraged one another, steeled one another by speaking against such things, by speaking true things about God. The New Testament recognizes the value of this kind of speech in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. It reads this way. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As a, as a habit of life and as a manifestation of their fear of the Lord, they stir one another up to more faithful service to Him. Find also that those who serve God love God. They love God. text says of those who feared the Lord that they esteemed His name. We've, we've mentioned before that the name of God in the Scriptures, it refers to His character in person. So what's being said here is that they esteemed 
who God is. They, they held him in, they held him high in their hearts. That they loved who he was. So while the majority are accusing God of injustice, these are the kind of people recognizing that God had withheld the justice that they deserved. And, and they praised God for it. These were the people with the heart of Daniel who recognized their own sin and the greatness of God and the magnificence of His grace in light of both. These are the kind of people who would think to themselves and say to one another, Oh, what an amazing God that He would forgive our sin which is so great an offense against His searing holiness. What an amazing God this is. Undoubtedly, they were speaking against the words of the majority, and they were esteeming the name of the Lord as they were doing so. Those who serve the Lord are called righteous by God. Those who serve God also are called righteous by God. Just as the Lord called those who do not serve Him wicked, in verse 18, calls those who do serve Him righteous. Now this is astounding. We, we may kind of get used to it. We need to not get used to it. We need to remind ourselves of verses like Ecclesiastes 7.20, which reads, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now there's stuff like that all over the Bible. That's just one. Ecclesiastes 7.20. You can put it in your holster. Right? How can God call us righteous? How can God call anyone righteous? when Ecclesiastes 7.20 is true. Well, how God can do that we'll deal with a bit later, but the point is, that's how He views them. He views those who, who serve Him as righteous. So, within this larger group of Judah who do not truly serve God, there, there's a remnant who serve God, fear God, stir one another up to faithfulness to God, and who are called righteous by God. Now, remember that big question, that Malachi's put in front of us, what profit is there in serving God? It is an important question for us, and it is as important for the remnant to consider that question as it is for those who don't know the Lord. Why is that? Because the remnant need to be reminded of the answer to that question, especially in a world where the world and the nominal believer are so loud speaking against the Lord. We need to hear the word telling us, yes, it is profitable. It is profitable. And so Malachi puts in front of us the prophet both, prophets both of following the Lord and not following the Lord. So we'll start, first of all, with the righteous. The prophets of the righteous, what are they? In, in, in just a phrase, eternal blessings. Eternal blessings. And we find them enumerated here for us. A wonderful nugget there in the middle of verse 16. The Lord paid attention and heard them. You know, we have no right to that. The Lord paid attention and heard them. A great cross-reference is Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The Lord has this special, gracious disposition to see and hear the righteous. What profit is there in following the Lord? Great in every way. The Lord sees and hears us. Now what did the Lord, what did the Lord hear? He heard them 
speaking to one another, stirring one another up to faithfulness. He heard them speaking against the lies that were being told about him. And in verse 16 also, tells us that a book of remembrance was written before the Lord of those who feared him and esteemed his name. Now, we might not know what to make of that, but there are, there are clues in the Bible and in history. The Persian kings of that era, they kept just such a book that they, where, where they would write down or their, their servants would write down detailed records of the actions of their people so that they could reward faithfulness. And you can read about an example of this in Esther chapter 6. When Ahasuerus can't sleep one night, he says, bring out the book and let's, let's, let's hear about some of these deeds of faithfulness from my people. And he is told of this, this deed of faithfulness by Mordecai and he's moved to reward that faithfulness. You remember the story. It's the same thing going on here. There's a, a book of remembrance. The Lord is writing down their faithfulness. Why? That he might reward them. All of this is astounding when you keep Ecclesiastes 7.20 in mind, right? There is none righteous. There's nobody who doesn't sin. Nobody deserves anything good that God gives them. And yet he's giving them these good things. Now look, look at what he says of them in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. There's a, there's a day of coming judgment. And on that day, God says, those who serve him, fear him, follow him, trust him, that is, the righteous, they will be his own treasured possession. And that treasured possession, that's language from Exodus 19. But it reminds me of, of the Song of Songs. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He is my beloved and this is my friend. Do you, do you know that, that this gift of grace means that not only does the Lord say of you and I, mine, but we are able to say of Jesus, mine. What is the profit of following Jesus? It's Jesus. And, and those who love him find that extraordinary. It's extraordinary. What is the profit of following the Lord? It's great in every way. So God, God acknowledges by implication, though, that this, this life is one of trouble. It's one of pain for those who serve him. The Lord is not shy about this. In fact, he, he promises that this is the way it's going to be. And he promises here something wonderful in 4.2. Jump down to 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall shine, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. When I read these verses, I can't help but think of the final chapters of Revelation. Where the, the wicked will be thrown with the devil and his demons into the lake of fire. And, and we will be finally and completely removed once and for all from the influence of sin. Revelation chapter 2 speaks of healing for the nations where where we will see His face. And because of that face, we will have no need for light of lamp or, or sun, for the Lord God will be our light. That image of, 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 of 
leaping like calves from the stall here in the text is one of eternal youth and vitality and joy. How many of us feel feel ourselves getting older, losing a step? You don't run the 40 like you used to, right? Well, one of the prophets of, of following the Lord is eternal youth and joy and vitality that he describes here as leaping like calves from the stall. The prophet of serving God. We get Christ. We get Christ and we get all the blessings in the heavenly places. What is the profit of following the Lord? It is great in every respect. The Lord also relates His intention to bring a kind of profits upon those who don't serve Him. So what are the profits of the wicked? A similar phrase, but drastically different. Eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. The righteous receive eternal blessings. The wicked, eternal judgment. Look again at 3.18. We've read it once. We'll read it again. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. Those who do not serve God have a very different destiny than those who do serve God because He makes a distinction between them. So what we find here is Malachi showing a distinction that God makes between His people and those who are not His people, the same distinction that He began this prophecy with. If you want to look at that in your own time, you can. This this began with God saying, you are different than those who are not mine. Those who are not mine are different than those who are mine. Look at 4.1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that's coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now listen, the, the, the Bible is remarkably consistent in how it depicts judgment. You see, an awful lot of fiery language. Burning like an oven here. In the New Testament, lake of fire. On Jesus' lips frequently, a fire that never dies. Pay attention to the words that he uses to describe those who suffer that fire. Look, look, look there again. For one, all the arrogant and all evildoers. Arrogant and evildoers. Go back up now to 3.15 where, where those who did not serve God were saying this. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. See, those who don't serve God, they think of the arrogant and, and evildoers. They've got it made. Only good things happen to them. They escape God's judgment. We might as, we might as well join them. God reveals that those who don't serve God, that is, those who were uttering those words in 3.15, they are the arrogant and evildoers, and they aren't blessed in any sense, and they don't escape. They are set ablaze so that they have no root or branch. What profit is there in serving God? Eternal blessings. There's also profit, in a sense, in not serving God. We call them consequences, eternal judgment. The prophet puts those in front of us, these respective prophets, as a reminder so that you and I, as, as believers challenged by the difficulties of this life, so that we'll remember, yes, of course, there, there is great profit in following Christ. And though, though we may think that the wicked have it better 
at times. It is a mirage. It is a mirage. Now Malachi closes this final passage of the Old Testament with, with, with an exhortation. And we could, we could phrase that exhortation in this way. Serve God. It gives an exhortation to all. Serve God. In light of these things, in light of what can be expected by those who serve Him and who don't serve Him, serve Him! Verse 4.4 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This is, this is simply a call to persevere in serving, trusting, following the Lord. We, we may have a tendency when we see the law of, of Moses mentioned, we may have a tendency to wrongly think, oh, well, this, is, this, is, this is a call to keep a bunch of rules. Or worse, we may think, well, this is a call for them to earn God's favor, or, or somehow earn salvation. That is not true. The spirit of the law of Moses was the, to call the people to love God. Re- remember the great commandment of the law, according to Jesus. It sums up all of the law. It's found in Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is what God always wanted from the people. The law is not bad, and it did not offer a faulty, works-based way of salvation. It exposed man's inability to love God. Exposed his heart problem, a, a heart problem that God alone can fix. See, no matter how many times God called them back to Himself, called them to love Him rightly, and to live rightly in light of that love, the people strayed. I mean, they were, they were slaves to sin, born that way. They loved their sin. They hated God. And we're, we're born the same way. I mean, we're, they, they weren't special. They weren't unique in, in any way compared to the rest of mankind. We're just like them. We're born. We love sin, hate God. The problem for them and for us is that these consequences that we've just looked at of not following, fearing, trusting, serving Him, they are very real for all people, not just these people in Judah at the end of the Old Testament, these are the consequences for everyone who rebels against God. Everyone. Four one pictures them for us. And in a sense, four one gives us one last call in the Old Testament to come back to God. But it assumes their inability, given what follows. This is my view. I I believe he assumes their inability, given what we find in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." What was the job of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament? They, they, they called the people to repentance. And it seems that Elijah is representative of all the prophets. And there are numerous reasons to say that. One of them is, is that the two figures present at Jesus' transfiguration were Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. The call to know and love God and the call to repent and come back to God. But this, this reference to Elijah is more than just a representation of the work of all the prophets. In a sense, it is a representation of the work of all the prophets because it's a call to repent. But it's more than that because in Luke one seventeen, we read about the angel talking to a man named Zechariah about the impending birth 
of his son, whose name would be John. We know him as John the Baptist. And the angel said this, He, John, will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The New Testament teaches us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this promise at the end of the Old Testament. And it indicates that God anticipates the people still are not going to be able to love him rightly. Even as he's calling him in verse 4, look, look, go back to the law and, and follow the spirit of the law. Love me rightly. He anticipates they're not going to be able to do that. They'll, they'll, they'll need one final call to, re, to repentance prior to the coming of the Lord himself. And Malachi has already talked about the Lord himself coming back in chapter 3 of this prophecy, if you'll remember. So Jesus, Jesus was the answer to man's inability to love God, that heart problem. Man's inability to love God, to fear God, to serve God. Jesus, the eternal Son, He came and lived as a man. He, he took the penalty of man's rebellion against God by dying on the cross for sins that He didn't commit. He rose from the dead three days later as a declaration that He had done what we could not do. That is, He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and he condemned sin in his own flesh. Because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, now his righteousness is ours. And that's how God can call the remnant righteous. See, he gives us this name. He gives it to us. He gives it to all those who repent and trust in Jesus. He gives them that name and then all of the blessings that go along with that name are ours. Now further, in, in accordance with promises made in the prophets, to all those who belong to Christ, He gives a new heart. He, he, he gives this heart that loves God, wants to obey God, sees the beauty of Christ, and follows Him. Listen, those of you who know Jesus, you've experienced this. There was a day when you did not see the beauty of Christ, right? He was just a historical figure. Or he was somebody that you read about in the Bible. But then the Lord opened your eyes. And then he's, he's Jesus. Right? You know this. You know what this is like. But the final word of this passage, the final word of the Old Testament is one of warning. Those last, those last words again. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Utter destruction, that's the phrase used for the complete annihilation that God commanded the people to bring upon the Canaanites in the conquest back in Joshua and Judges. So what the Lord is saying is, if you turn from Jesus, that is what awaits you. Utter destruction. Now jump back up to the end of verse 1 where the Lord tells what the prophets are to those who do not serve Him. Into four, one, the day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Something that may have jumped out to some of us and maybe not to others, but again, this, this is a depiction of judgment day. If we're steeped in the prophets, the words root and branch should mean something to us. Those are messianic designations used in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, pointing to Jesus. 
So the Holy Spirit is saying here through, through Malachi that those who turn away from Jesus, those who do not serve Jesus, they will have no root or branch on the day of judgment. There will be no Savior for them. There, there is no salvation for them on that day. There, there will be no one for them to turn to. What profit is there in serving God? Some say that it's vain, that it's pointless. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord Jesus asked a similar question, perhaps playing on Malachi's words in, in Mark 8, verse 36. The Lord said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That looks at this same issue just from the other side. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If by not serving God, you gain everything that you see the arrogant and evildoers enjoying. You gain the whole world, but you lose your soul. What do you profit? And that puts in front of us that there really are only two ways to live. There is following Christ and there is forfeiting your soul. There, there are only two ways. You follow Christ or you forfeit your soul. Now, gaining the whole world will not make the latter worth it. You may gain the world, but you will reap hell's whirlwind. And rightfully so, it's what we all deserve because of our consistent rebellion against God. But following Christ, what does that mean? It means gaining heaven and earth, more importantly, it means gaining Christ. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Psalm 16 says it so beautifully. The Lord is our portion and our cup. He is the great gift that we look forward to. What profit is there in following Christ? It is Christ. What a wonderful and needful reminder for believers beset by difficulties. It's a needful call to those who do not know the Lord. And there may be some among us this morning of whom that is true. If you have never repented and trusted in Christ, you, you are in a hurtful place this morning. Because you're still under the weight of your sin. You're still under that, that, that curse of sin that condemns you for all eternity to separation from Christ. Condemns you to hell away from His glorious presence under the wrath of Almighty God. So this morning, th this passage would say to you that there is only one way out of that. His name is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and so the, the Holy Spirit says to you, repent this morning, turn away from from that life of sin, that rebellion against God. Jesus Christ came bringing Himself as a sacrifice for sins. He died for sins. He rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. So Jesus says to you, having repented in your sin, trust in Me. Don't trust in any works that you've done. They are garbage before God on the day of judgment. Trust in Me. I alone can save you. If you have any questions about that this morning, please Ask somebody. There are folks all around you who can answer your questions. The elders also are available and we would love to talk to you. But don't leave this place without unanswered, with unanswered questions. 
I'm going to pray and then we'll share a moment of brief re- reflection in silence as we end the service and then we will sing and close. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious goodness to us, your incredible patience with which you, you endure our, our falling back into old questions, considering, is it even worth following Christ? When I see all the difficulty that comes along with it, when I see that the, the, the ungodly are they're prospering, they're joyful. Lord, thank you for texts like this that remind us of the truth. And thank you for your patience and, and kindness to us to offer these reminders. We pray that, that the gospel would take hold of our hearts once again this morning and that we would see what we saw on the day of our conversion, that is the beauty of Christ, that there is great profit in following him, that we get him and we get all the blessings in the heavenly places. What a wonderful inheritance you have given us in him. Father, if there are those among us who do not know the Lord Jesus this morning, I pray that you would graciously bring upon them a crushing understanding and conviction of their sin. That they would see themselves as doomed outside of Christ because that's what they are. And that having seen themselves rightly as under your wrath, they would see Jesus as the beautiful hope for sinners. That they would turn from their sin We would trust in Him and be saved. We pray for these things in Jesus' name.